This morning we're going to continue to journey through the book of Mark. Uh, We're going to look at a story this morning where somebody comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to get to heaven? What must I do to get eternal life? And so in preparation for the sermon, I watched some YouTube videos of, uh, of guys going on the street with their video camera and a microphone interviewing people on the streets, kind of catching them and saying, hey, what do you think it takes to get into heaven? And as you can imagine, there were some really interesting answers and most people were really taken off guard, but I wrote down some of the more common answers. Some people said, I have no clue. I have no idea. Uh, some people said, there are many ways. Some people said, everybody gets into heaven. This is something that is available for everybody. And of course, there were those, those that said, I simply don't believe heaven doesn't exist. Death is the end. But by far, the most common answer that I would say 80, 90% of people answered had something to do with goodness. And it went like this. You got to be a nice person. You got to treat others the way you want to be treated. Uh, there's got to be a lot of good deeds in your life. You need to be a decent human being. A couple people said that. Uh, You have to be more good than bad. That's what's going to do it for you, as long as you're more good than bad. Uh, Pretty interesting. I bet most people in this room can say they've had a conversation uh, with somebody about Christianity that goes something like this. They would say to you, I think what you believe is great, and what I believe is good too, and really what matters is how good you are. That's what really matters. If your belief leads to goodness, then that's good for you. And my belief leads to goodness, and that's good for me. And ultimately, that's what all religions are about, right? Is just essentially being a good person. Isn't that the point and the meaning of life? I've had many conversations like that. Um, sounds familiar. If you, I'm sure you can even think of interviews uh, where, where celebrities or talk show hosts are speaking. And they're basically saying this kind of thing, that... It's good to be good, it's nice to be nice, and that's really what matters. You might even see some popular televangelists say similar types of things. That ultimately, it all kind of comes down to goodness. This isn't a new concept for 21st century North Americans. Uh, today, we're going to look at a story that addresses this very question, and we're going to look at how Jesus addresses it in his context. And so, uh, Mark chapter 10, we've been journeying through the book of Mark for the last few months, and, uh, and I get Mark chapter 10, and so there's a story, it's titled The Rich Young Ruler. It's a popular story, you, most of you will be familiar with it. It's a story actually uh, that shows up in three of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which means that all three of the writers felt that this was a really important story. Of all the things that Jesus said and did, this was one that all three agreed really needs to make it, really needed to make it into the Gospels. So it's certainly something that we need to pay attention to. Um, each of the Gospel writers have a different take on the same event, which is, which is actually a good thing, because that gives historical credibility to, to the to the event that took place. So Mark chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along and we're just going to kind of work our way through it. I believe it will show up on the screen. There we go. That's always a good thing, right? As Jesus started on his way, a man ran to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man wants to make sure that death isn't the end, that Um, that there is some sort of promise of a future after death. So let's pick this apart. What do we know about this man? The book of Luke tells us that he's a ruler. The book of Matthew tells us that he was young. All three of the gospel writers agree that he was rich. And so this is where we get the title, Rich Young Ruler. 
Now, in that day, even more so than this day, in our day today, if you were rich, it meant that you were favored by God. That if God's favor and blessing was on you, you would naturally be a rich person. It's one of the signs that you had a good relationship with God, you were in right standing, that God really chose to bless you. And so this man certainly falls in that category. Um, he had a position of authority. He's a ruler. So he's got wealth and he's got respectability and he's young, which means he's got a long life ahead of him. So according to worldly standards, especially in that day and age, this man, he had basically reached the top. He was at the upper echelon of, um, of society. We're also going to see in a few sentences later that this man is morally rich. He wasn't one of those snobby rich guys. He, wasn't, he didn't come across as arrogant. He was a genuinely decent person who wanted to keep the law. There's this humility about him. He recognizes in himself that he doesn't have it all together. So he comes to Jesus and he recognizes, there's something still missing in my life, Jesus. What do I need to do? So he's genuine. He runs to Jesus and he kneels down. So he's very sincere. He's not like some other guys that are trying to trap him in his words or, or ask really difficult questions to try to get Jesus to say something wrong. Not this guy. This guy's really genuine, really sincere. He recognizes that something's missing in his life. He comes to Jesus, falls at his feet and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And this is the key to this, the, the key to this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy wants eternal life and he wants to achieve it by himself. And like so many in his day and in our day, he's caught up in the trappings of religious duty. Religious duty tells us that we have to earn it, that we have to work for it, that we have to somehow be good enough. Most religious systems or philosophical thoughts ultimately lead to this point, that you have to achieve it. What you do is what uh, gives you the end result. Jesus' message is so much different than that. It's so much more radical. I want you to look at some irony here. It's ironic that this man uses the word inheritance. It's ironic because he actually gets that right, and yet he goes about it all the wrong way. If I asked you a question, how, were you, how would you get an inheritance? Do you have to earn it? Do you have to work for it? Is my inheritance coming to me because somehow I have to prove to my parents that I'm good enough to earn it? Am I in competition with my brother and sister so that, so that I can be better than them, so that I can get more a piece of the puzzle? Is that how, inheritance, how inheritances are achieved? Do you have to earn it? No, not at all. You get an inheritance not because of how good you are, but who you are right? Who's you belong to? So um, if it was a race, I think I'd probably be in a bit of trouble. So thank goodness I belong to a family that, uh, you know, keeps it pretty even. Uh, who you belong to is what really matters. The man goes to Jesus and he says, I want an inheritance. What do I have to do? Imagine me going to my parents. Hey, I want, I want an inheritance. What do I have to do to earn it? See, the question's kind of skewed right from the beginning. I mean, you would never do that, right? So let's look at Jesus' answer, verse 18. Why do you call me good, Jesus answers. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And his answer, teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. So Jesus starts by reframing what goodness actually is. He says to this man, only God is good. Only God gets to determine what is good. Now, we need to be careful not to read too much more into this statement. This isn't some sort of 
Um, wasn't Jesus God, so wasn't he good? That's not really the point here. We need to see what Jesus is doing. He is reframing the man's idea about what goodness actually is. And he's trying to help this man understand that only God is good. Only God gets to decide and determine what goodness actually is. And then Jesus quotes a few of the basic commandments to the man. And you might ask, well, what's going on here? Is it really, is it really obedience to the law that makes you good enough? Is that what Jesus is trying to do? And of course not. Jesus is actually showing the man that he is incapable of following the law, that he cannot do it perfectly, and that's why he's quoting these passages. So I want you to notice the man's response. He says, well, I've done all this already. I'm good enough on my own merit. Now, if this is truly the case, if this man truly believes that he is good enough, why did he even bother coming to Jesus? Why is there still an emptiness in him? Why does he still feel like there is something missing? Why bother coming to Jesus if you feel like you're good enough already? And I think the answer to that is probably like all of us, our goodness never quite feels like it's good enough, does it? We still feel like, oh, there's still something missing, isn't there? Like, how do we know uh, we're good enough? And here's my, where's the line? You know, for those people who think they're okay based on their goodness and would answer a question about how you get to heaven based on your goodness, I would simply ask them, how do you know you're good enough? And who determines where the line is between when you cross from bad to good? What is that line and who determines what that line is? And how do you know that you're there? Right? I think, you know, uh, we, we got Hitler kind of badness and we got Mother Teresa type of goodness and we kind of fall on the spectrum there. How do we know where that line is and when we cross it? And who gets to determine it? Determine it. It's a pretty bit, it's pretty uh, confusing. Um, Jesus has a very surprising response for this man. The response is so telling of how far away this man is from actually being good enough on his own. What Jesus does here, I think, is absolutely fascinating. Instead of arguing with the man about his goodness, instead of telling the man, well, you're actually not good enough, or you don't, you don't actually keep all the law, what he does is he points out, he, uh, he uses an, ex- an example of how this man is not actually keeping the whole law. So look at Jesus' response here. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. One thing you lack. It actually looks like three things, doesn't it? Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. So how are these three things one thing? How are these three demands really one? And I think we can sum it up like this. Your attachment to your possessions needs to be replaced by an attachment to me. Your attachment to your possessions need to be replaced by an attachment to me. We read this and we so often focus on the sell everything you have uh, part of the passage, but sometimes we can kind of miss what the goal is. What's the goal? Come and follow me. That's really the heart of what Jesus is asking this man to do. Follow me. This is fundamentally what it means to be a Christian. And this is what's missing in the man's heart. You lack one thing, Jesus says. You lack me. You lack me. Stop treasuring money. Stop treasuring wealth and power and start treasuring me. You want to inherit eternal life? Only by your attachment to me is that made possible. You can't achieve it on your own. You need to receive it. The one thing you still lack, it's me. So is this about money? 
It's not about money. It's about the heart. It's about what you deem as most important in your life. What are you attached to? It's interesting to note that this is the only reference in the Bible where Jesus actually asks somebody to sell everything that they have. This isn't a standard formula for what it actually means to follow Jesus. This is a specific call in a specific case. Jesus looks at this man, he sees his heart, and he saw that the only way this man could truly follow Jesus would be for him to unattach himself from his stuff and reattach himself to Jesus. And that's what's at the heart of the story. What are you clinging to in life? What are you pursuing? What is most valuable to you? Let's look at the man's response here, verse 22. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So the man goes away sad. At this moment, the man is unwilling to surrender himself to Jesus. Now, maybe he's going away to count the cost. Let's hope that's the case. Maybe he's going to go back and go, "Ah, I really got to think this through. I recognize that it's costly. We don't know how this man responds. Some people, some commentators actually think this man might be Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea is the one that bought the tomb for Jesus' body. Impossible to know, but pretty interesting to speculate. And I think that would be really cool if that was the case. So this man went back, counted the cost, and still ended up deciding to follow Jesus. We don't know. We know at this moment, he goes away sad. So then Jesus uses the situation as a teaching tool for his disciples. Verse 23, Jesus looks around at his disciples. Or Jesus looks around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, Well, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Jesus said, it's hard. No, actually, it's impossible to do this on your own. You cannot do this based on your own goodness. And then he gives this really interesting word picture. They take the largest animal that they knew of that day in the desert, the camel, and one of the smallest holes that you can barely see, the eye of a needle, and say, that's how impossible it is. You cannot do this on your own. And the disciples are blown away. Because to them, you've got to remember that the rich are the ones that are truly blessed by God. The rich are the ones that that God has heavily favored. And so if they don't have a chance, who has a chance? And that's the point. What's impossible for the rich is just as impossible for everyone else. No matter how good you are or how good you might think you are or how good other people might think you are, it's not good enough. It's not possible. You cannot earn it. You cannot earn it. You must receive it. And then this grace piece wraps it all up. What's impossible for us is possible for God. This beautiful picture of grace, that what we are unable, unable to do on our own, God does for us. When we say yes to Jesus, say, yes, I will follow you with my life, he gives us this incredible gift of grace, and he calls us his children, and he gives us the promise and the hope of inheritance and a life with him. It's this amazing picture of what God does for us, what is impossible on on our own, it's made possible because of him. So there's our story. 
And this leads us, I think, to uh, a few application points that I want to just kind of bring out here. The first one is this. I think it does show up on the screen. Uh, Salvation is an inheritance that we receive, not something that we achieve. Salvation is something we receive, not something we achieve. When we say yes to Christ, we become part of his family. We become co-heirs with Christ. We become part of the inheritance of God. And we get to call God Abba, Father. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Romans. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. This word Abba, this is a word for an intimate calling. It's like daddy in Aramaic. That's what it means. It means that when you're a child of God, you get to call God Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I mean, isn't this amazing? That if you are following Jesus today, if you are a Christian, then, then you have been adopted into the family of God. And you are a co-heir with Christ. And you get to call God, the creator of the universe, Abba, Father, Daddy. And that's where you belong. And that's where your inheritance is. And that's where your identity is. This beautiful picture of who we are when we become Christians. This amazing, beautiful, gracious message of God. Salvation is an inheritance that we receive, not something that we achieve. Number two, being a Christian means being willing to abandon everything for the sake of Christ, being willing to abandon everything. Christianity is not just something you add to your life. It's not just some sort of system of thought that kind of rounds out how you might want to think. This is everything. Christianity is not a hobby. It's not a turn the switch on Sunday morning and turn the switch off Sunday afternoon. I've done my religious duty and now I'm good to go. Now Christianity involves your whole life. It involves you really committing yourself to following and knowing Jesus. Just a few chapters earlier, Jesus said this in Mark, and he says this in all of the Gospels. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the sake and for the Gospel will save it. Following Jesus is everything. It defines you. It shapes you. It becomes your identity. It is costly. Let no one tell you otherwise, it's costly. You give yourself up for the sake of Christ. Uh, Jesus asks us to be willing to put him first, over and above everything. And that's exactly what he does to this rich young ruler. He says, you've got to put me first. Nothing else gets in the way. I am number one for you. As I was thinking and stewing on this sermon, I couldn't help but ask myself the question as a parent, what am I modeling in my home? And a question for our parents and grandparents. What do our kids see in us? Would, our kids, would my kids say that Jesus is a hobby for me? Some sort of Sunday morning ritual? Or would they look in my life and look in our home and say, no, this is what mom and dad are centering their lives around. This is who they are. This shapes their understanding of how the world is. It shapes their understanding of how they make decisions. It shapes their understanding of how they spend time with us and how they spend their money. This is everything for my parents. I hope my kids can say that of me. That's what we're striving for. I don't know if they would or not, but it's certainly what we're looking for. Um, It's a good question to ask us. What do our kids see in our homes? What do they see when they go to their grandparents' homes? A passion for God, 
where God is number one, where God is center. I have such a passion for our church to be, we're a church full of families. I look at these kids and I look at these youth. I, just, I pray every day for Creekside families. I pray that we would be families, that what goes on in our homes throughout the week points our kids to Jesus. Where they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is number one in our lives. All the statistics still are saying that the number one catalyst for young people to choose faith for themselves is the influence of their parents. Still number one. And they don't want to see some religious stuff in their parents. They want to see that Jesus is actually for real for them. And that they have abandoned everything to follow Christ. Do they see that in us? So I continue to pray for Creekside. As somebody that is passionate about seeing our kids and our youth, I recognize that probably the best thing that we can do as a church is care for and pour into into parents. Because that's really where it begins and where it happens. Number three, what is our biggest distraction from making this happen? We need to be very careful of the seductive power of wealth. Very, very careful. The pursuit of wealth and power can so often trap us into complacency and uh, into a life where God just, just takes the back seat. And we may not even mean for that to happen, but it does because wealth so easily becomes a focus for us. Jesus speaks so much about money in the scriptures. We need to take really seriously how the pursuit of wealth so easily corrupts us and, and uh, corrupts our character and distracts us from what matters most. Hear these words that uh, Paul writes to Timothy, and Timothy's in a church where there's clearly some wealthy people, and this is the instructions that he gives. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and, tra- and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so we have, the rich need to be really conscious of how easy it is to fall into that trap of greed and complacency and, and wandering away from the faith. And I see that lots. I see that with young people who are passionate young people for Jesus. And then they get a degree and they start making lots of money and they stop going to church and they stop serving. And all of a sudden they've wandered away from the faith and they go, what happened? Well, it's because they started climbing the corporate ladder and other things got more, more important to them and they just lost sight of Jesus. Now, don't hear me wrong. I want to be really clear. Being rich is not wrong. It is not a sin. Jesus' ministry was funded by rich women. The early church met in rich people's homes. Um, Global missions is today and, and in the past have been funded by rich people. I think being rich is a real blessing and a real gift from God. We just have to be really careful and aware of the temptation that our wealth can cause us. A little later on in that passage is what Paul says to Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth. Notice that he doesn't say command those who are rich to sell everything and give it to the poor. He doesn't say that. He just says be really, really careful not to get arrogant or to put your hope in those things. It's so uncertain. Put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Number four, the last one here that I want to talk about. Our goodness is a response to what God has done for us, not something that we do to earn his favor. I think at first reading of this passage, we could end up being a little bit confused um, if we don't think about it right. Is this passage about grace or is this passage about works? What, is this act- what exactly is going on here? 
we have, to, we have to put grace and works in their proper categories. I want to turn to Ephesians here. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Okay, so let's, let's just acknowledge that it's only by grace through faith that we are saved. But let's not miss verse 10 because often we stop there. What does verse 10 say? For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so good works are a byproduct of our faith. They are the fruit of a life saved by grace alone through faith. And so let's just keep grace and works in their proper categories. And I think we certainly see that in this passage, in this conversation that Jesus has with this man. So that's our passage. That's Mark chapter 10. I think there's a few things in there that we can stew on and, and learn from. I'm going to invite Julie and the band to come up, and I think we got a really good song that's going to kind of cap it all off. So why don't I just pray as you guys are coming up. God, I do thank you for a chance for us to meet here again. I thank you for your word and how powerfully it speaks into our lives. And I pray for all of us that uh, we would just take a good look into our own lives and make sure that our attachment is to you as number one and not to anything else. Uh, Jesus, I thank you that you give us life, that you give us inheritance, that you call us uh, your children, co-heirs with you, Lord. We just give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen.